For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. An eight-story building housing garment factories collapses in Bangladesh. Rescue workers in the Bangladeshi capital, Dhaka, are continuing to hunt for survivors trapped in the wreckage of the eight-story building, which collapsed in the morning rush hour. Killing at least 145 people. At least 175, mainly women workers, are now known to have died. Killing more than 230 people. 804 people have been confirmed dead. 1,137 people didn't survive. A huge crowd gathered as workers used rolls of fabric to make their escape. It was not natural disaster. You could prevent it. You could prevent it by following the building code and it structurally build your factory for a factory that can take the enough weight that you want it to put, not like Rana Plaza that you fill a pond with the sand. The ugly Rana Plaza disaster should have been a wake-up call. But has anything really changed? We've seen significant improvements to health and safety conditions in Bangladesh's factories. But we've also documented continuing and serious violations of labor rights, including workers who are forced to work overtime, sometimes without being paid for it, workers who are subject to verbal and even physical harassment, often because they can't meet production quotas, and factories that deny workers sick leave or maternity leave, even holidays. We didn't get salary on time. Even we are cheating with them over time. No job security, no job contract. Also, the gender-based violence is a key issue because of the girls are very poor. So it's easy to manipulate, easy to exploit it. And mostly the people who are coming to our country to make products, their philosophy and their concept is the workers are cheap labor. We were born with a somehow kriduka, which is who made my clothes? Because the truth is that The fashion supply chain is convoluted, inefficient, and hidden. And the people we should value, the people we should respect, the people that are producing the clothes that we wear every single day are invisible to us. Hello, everyone. That last grab was Ursula de Castro, co-founder of Fashion Revolution, talking about why the campaign Who Made My Clothes began. It was Fashion Revolution that got me into this world of sustainability and Rana Plaza that started it all. You also heard, along with those news reports from Emma Daly from Human Rights Watch and union leaders Kalpana Akhtar and Nazma Akhtar. And if you'd like to re-listen to our older podcast featuring those two, I'll put the links in the show notes. Ten years ago, I didn't know anything about sustainability. I was working at Vogue, selling the dream, fashion as a beautiful fantasy, clothes as escapism. And you know, it was a dream because most people couldn't afford those clothes that we featured in the magazine. They cost thousands of dollars. So I wrote about, I don't know, things that didn't mean anything, about luxury brands, about fashion weeks, celebrities, nothing to do with real life. It was super disconnected. But it wasn't all that because I also worked in features and I did think about more important things. I wrote about working women, about gender equality and culture. And I do actually remember writing about global warming back in 2007, was it, when Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth came out. 
I remember researching that. So I was a journalist. I was aware of what was going on in the world. But I, I do think it's fair to say that most of my fashion work was in a bubble. Rana Plaza was a change point for me. And this 10-year anniversary feels massive. So I wanted to make an episode to reflect on how far we've come. I do hope you're not feeling sort of Rana Plaza'd out after Fashion Revolution Week. Because, you know, these topics don't go away just because the headlines are all about the Met Gala now. I was worrying because I was like, oh, we can't get this done in time. We hadn't planned it and it was quite last minute. I was like, oh, people will have moved on. It's not Fashion Revolution Week anymore. But I know that you are smarter than that and more interested in sustainability than that. So I'm hoping you're going to stay with me for this. We made a massive effort to get it together quickly. Actually only recorded it a few days ago. And I just want to say a big thank you to my fantastic sound editor, Andy, for making space for us. He really is amazing. And without him, you wouldn't get to listen. We love you, Andy. As usual, I'd love to hear what you think. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. And please do check the show notes for all the links at www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And remember to rate and review us if you listen in Apple. Ready? You're going to hear from three people who spend their days advocating for a better deal for garment workers. Tamaza Ahmed from ActionAid, Sarah Knopp from Baptist World Aid, and Oxfam's Naeem Emran. I think listening to what these three have to say will challenge anyone who is tempted to oversimplify all this. You know, it's kind of easy to be like, all the brands are bad, or maybe even all offshore production is bad. But that's rubbish, obviously. I love how Tamaza encourages us to look at the leaps and bounds that the good factories have taken in the last decade, and how state-of-the-art and highly certified and progressive some of them are. Actually reminded me of something Moyne Roberts Islam said in episode 160. We'll share a link. That one's all about digital fashion, actually. But Moyne is also from Bangladesh, and he is rightly frustrated by the one-note stories on the garment industry there. Also, another thing to listen out for, in the interview with Sarah, the bit where we talk about how brands are just places where people work, and plenty of those people are determined to do better. Sarah actually used to be a buyer, and I found her perspective really eye-opening. It's also interesting to learn how buying works. I don't think it's something we've covered on the show before. Finally, living wages. I mean, these are absolutely vital to solving the problems. As you'll hear, workers were ordered back into Rana Plaza after it was clear the building was unsafe. If they weren't worried that they wouldn't get paid, if they weren't so desperately in need of that money, they could have refused. Okay, let's sit down with Tamaza Ahmed, Manager for Women's Rights and Gender Equity at ActionAid Bangladesh. Tamaza, you're in Sydney at the moment. I heard you talk last night on a panel, Rana Plaza, 10 years on. Is fashion safer for garment workers? You were joined by ActionAid Australia's Executive Director, Michelle Higlin, Oxfam's Naeem Emran and Bonnie Graham from Baptist World Aid, which has just put out the latest ethical fashion report. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. I know that you've worked for various organizations. I understand you work for the United States Agency for International Development in the Bangladesh Program Office. You've done stuff for the UN. What's your background? Well, I mean, I'm born and bred in Dhaka, totally Bangladeshi. I've been working in the development uh, sector for over a decade. I specialized, started off specializing in project design and 
after working in those organizations that you mentioned, I started freelancing before uh, joining ActionAid. Do you remember what it was like there right after Rana Plaza? Yes, and that's that's an unforgettable. I won't say day, just day, but the days onwards, like that whole week was surreal in many ways. And the, you know, we are not as a country. We we might think that because we're so crowded and disasters, natural disasters, people dying frequently is is something that's part of our life. But even for a people like us, as resilient and as used to morbidity on a scale. Rana Plaza really even tested us. It really shook us. It's actually always so distressing when we go back over those events. And I feel like more so, obviously, if you're there on the ground, but that anyone involved in the fashion industry longer term remembers that terrible feeling of responsibility, terrible horror that so much destruction of life and families and stability could go on and be linked to this industry that we work with. I found it extremely distressing at the time, but even looking back over it now, 10 years later, you feel this, I I personally feel a kind of weight of responsibility that I work in an industry that's related to something like this. I, I get that and I rightfully so I understand that because if you talk about feeling that sense of connection and responsibility, if you want my personal perspective on it, the way I view it is because the ready-made garment industry is our largest foreign currency earner in Bangladesh. It accounts for almost 80% of our foreign income. Is that right? I didn't realize it was actually that high. It is that huge. To say that it's a priority sector is an understatement. This is the driving force of our economy. It has catapulted Bangladesh to where it stands now. And we have made great strides in the last uh, decade or so. But you know who was sitting in the driver's seat of this industry? The workers. That four and a half million workers are really the engine of that growth. And that's a narrative that gets lost. I want to come back to that, but I just would like to ask you how ActionAid operates in relation to the garment sector on the ground. First of all, we work directly with the RNG workers. That's our, uh, we work in three modalities. The first is wor- direct, working directly with uh, RMG workers in awareness raising, educating them, and uh, supporting them. We have a unique platform for working with them directly called the Women's Cafe. This was an innovation that we've developed in the last couple of years. It's, a, it's basically a hub, a small space where RMG workers can walk in after when they have uh, free time, when they're, I guess, after work or on weekends. And it's a relaxed, informal space. And this is where they can connect, take some time off and network with their peers, as well as receive some support. Just to explain the importance of a space like this, I have to give you some context. The ready-made garments factory workers in Bangladesh come from largely their marginalized, poor backgrounds, and they're either illiterate or they have very poor literacy, you know, just basic literacy skills. So when they walk in to a garments factory floor or when they walk into our women's cafe, they come in with little to no knowledge 
or awareness of what their basic rights and entitlements are. They do have some semblance of understanding as to what a good wage or a fair wage would be. But other than that, beyond that, you know, the complex issues they have no knowledge of. So the Women's Cafe has been bridging that gap in providing them that information. And also at the same time, we've been working with directly with female workers in providing them soft skills in terms of leadership and communication skills so that they, in the future, they can become better negotiators. And the other area that we work is advocacy. We work directly advocating with the government, the manufacturing associations, and all other relevant stakeholders. We work closely with the ILO. You said last night on the panel that certain factory owners had said to certain female garment workers, are you getting smarter now? (laughs) Yeah, and this is an interesting anecdote. That also reflects the relationship that the factory management, it wasn't an owner. The way factories are, they have uh, different levels of management. So there are managements that are up the managerial level that's uh, managing the operations. So they're the ones that are in, directly in touch with the workers. And then they grow up as any company does. So when they interact with their the management that's responsible for them, this was said in jest, as a joke, you know? Oh, you've smartened up, like, you know, chucklingly by their supervisor or whoever they were talking to. It reflects that, on their side, they're empowered enough to be able to vocalize, feel that, you know, the lack of inhibition to go and, you know, voice their opinion or their need. They have developed a good working relationship with the management, a good communication, which is key. You just mentioned before the narrative that maybe we're stuck when we talk about this from a country like Australia in an old narrative that centers only on the marginalization of workers, the disadvantage and the failings. But actually, 10 years is a long time and a lot's changed when it comes to the garment sector. You you pointed out last night that the country actually has the highest number of LEED certified factories in the world. And LEED, if listeners don't know, is leadership in energy and environmental design and it's certifiable. Right. And proudly so. And we're the third largest currently in terms of Uh, ready-made garments uh, manufacturing country. China is the largest. I think second is Vietnam. Sometimes we kind of interchange places with them, but largely we take the third place. And yet we are hosting the largest number of LEED certified garment factories in the world. And on top of that, you know, LEED certification has levels. So there's silver, gold, platinum. We also host the largest number of platinum factories in the world. And that's competing with a garments industry that's in China, which is way larger than ours. If that's not indicative of the progress or the status of our industry at the moment, then I don't know what is. These add to our competitive edge and the quality uh, of our garments industry, where we stand now. Yes, we still are the only probably nation that can generate the large amount of clothing for the cheapest price. That, that is a fact and that remains, but that's not the only story. It, it's very complex. I like to talk about living wage from a brand responsibility perspective. The most leverage, most power lies with the brands. They can dictate terms. The way we have the accord has kind of standardized and streamlined the process of, of workplace safety in the garment, in the garment industry. That is exemplary. And that is a model that we could emulate to bring together brands and buyers 
to work on other issues. Just on the accord, we've now seen the introduction of the international accord grew out of the Bangladesh Accord on Fire and Safety. In your opinion, how much has safety improved since Rana Plaza? It's a dramatic improvement. I can give you numbers because ever since the accord has come into place, uh, more than 2,400 RMG factories have been inspected with uh, around 56,000 inspections done because there are the accord looks into many aspects, you know, fire safety, electrical safety, structural safety. So, you know, inspections can be of many levels. 2,400 factories is more than one-fourth of the some odd 8,000 factories that we have in the country. So that's a tremendous progress. Let's finish on what you hear from workers. So you mentioned the women's cafes and how much change you've actually seen through that mechanism and that movement. And there is hope there. I mean, I feel like these are good news stories and we need to share them. But what are garment workers telling you they want next? This is a very common ask is that they are paid a better wage, a higher wage, a living wage, especially taking into account recent inflations. I was just reading a report from the Industrial Union from February of 2023 about that issue of inflation and minimum wages not keeping up. The inflation rate in Bangladesh crossed 9.5% in August 2022. That was the highest in 11 years. So I think any listener would be able to relate to this too. The cost of living crisis is happening everywhere. When inflation rises and wages do not rise accordingly, then you've got another crisis on your hands. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we are currently... This year, the government is going to revise. It has already put together, as we speak, a board to revise the minimum wage. But then we have to see if it meets our expectations or that of garment workers. But more often than not, it doesn't. I am hopeful that we have, we have made positive change. We've seen that. But, you know, part of it has been just natural growth as well. We've seen growth overall, but we haven't seen change in terms of the lives of the workers. You know, I don't think we've lifted them out of where they started off 10 years ago. We've made the workplace safer, but that's just a given. That's something every workplace owes to its employees. To say that, oh, we've given them that doesn't, doesn't say much. Real change would happen only when I see that the workers we work with directly on a regular basis through our, our programs, have their lives have changed. They have made some progress. They're looking into a better future for their children. That's when I'll say that change has actually taken place. One of the great things, I think, is how many strong women I hear from. There are amazing women, yourself included, that are actually being heard and changing this. I find that a place for hope. That is a place for hope. And I just hope that that continues to grow. That place needs to grow faster. It's not growing fast enough. <laughs> Again, I will say that when you say amazing women, that's where you got me. I'm not. I come from a well-to-do family, educated family. For me to be doing what I do, choose the profession and life that I have, that's not progress to me. Progress to me is what that 16-year-old girl who has you know, never been out of his, our village living in a conservative society, making the trek to Dhaka, and then finding her way into this unknown large factory 
and getting a small job as like a folding man and then working her way up to establish herself as a sewing operator and then building a life for herself in that city with all the challenges that you can't, you can't imagine things that we take for granted, no support system, no financial security. Instead, they are the breadwinners. They're supporting, if they're not married, they're supporting their families back home, often finance supporting their siblings, parents. And when they get married, they're supporting their children, their husband. Sometimes their marriages don't work out or the husband leaves. That's a common narrative as well. And then they're a single mom raising two children with no child support and on a very stringent wage trying to make ends meet and working 10-hour shifts, sometimes 15 to 16 hours during peak production period, going back home. And they don't have the luxury to order takeout on a day that they can't cook. They have to cook their dinner. They have to prepare the children's meal. They have to prepare their breakfast and their lunch and then go back to work and do every other chore and take care of their families while working these strenuous hours. And this is physical labor we're talking, 10 hours sitting in one position at a stretch with few breaks and a lunch break. You take, you know, sewing the T-shirt that you're wearing, you know. They are the unsung heroes of our economy and they're not, we've not done anything for them. If you are a Bangladeshi or you visited Bangladesh, you know that the country has made tremendous progress on the backs of the labor of these women. And what have we done for them? We don't even provide them the minimum basics. They don't even have the basic, you know, safety nets. Like if they are injured or they, you know, lose a limb or in in the case of an accident, the guarantee of a decent compensation that will cover them. Here's Sarah Knopp. She's the Australian Advocacy Manager for the NGO Baptist World Aid, which puts out the annual ethical fashion reports, holding brands to account. Sarah co-wrote this year's report, and you'll hear us unpack that. But also, as mentioned, listen out for her own personal experience working as a buyer. How do I say surname? Nop. Thought about that this morning. (laughs) It means button. It means button. Yeah. That's so nice. I know. Sarah Button, you have very nominative determinism. I know. My husband's Benjamin Button. <laughs> Is he really? Yeah. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Sarah Knopp. Thank you so much for having me, Claire. We're going to have a conversation about what has happened in the 10 years since the Rana Plaza factory disaster. We're doing this quite sort of off the cuff because we met just this week. We did. At a panel that you were attending you are the Advocacy Manager of Baptist World Aid Australia. I am, yes. Your organisation just published a report called What's Changed in 10 Years? And it looks at what's improved for garment workers, but also, importantly, what hasn't. Some of it makes for quite sobering reading, right? It does, absolutely. Some of the stats that we've been able to communicate in the report are pretty grim reading. Mm. It begins, I've got it written here, despite the remarkable advancements in areas like tracing, transparency and policies, outcomes for workers have failed to progress. And actually, we were both quoted about on this topic in a story for the Sydney Morning Herald this week. Could you tell us what the headline was for that? I can. Most fashion brands to take 75 years to pay garment workers fair wages. Oof. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about that. How did you come up with that and what does that mean? And is it really going to take 75 years? 
To mark the 10-year anniversary of the Rana Plaza disaster, we have released a special edition ethical fashion report. So for listeners who aren't familiar with our report, it's something that we've released every year since 2013. So it was actually coincidental that the first ethical fashion report was released just a few months after Rana Plaza. So all the research was done before all of that. That's right, yep. In producing this special edition, we were able to look at 10 years of data that we've collected on fashion companies both here in Australia and across the globe. And the way we do that is we have a survey-based methodology that has 46 questions currently on supply chain practice. And there are 18 indicators that we look at, ranging from things that include environmental sustainability, um, but also work exploitation and what companies are doing to prevent that in their supply chains. All right. So you co-authored this report. Come back to this 75 years thing. So How do you figure out that it would take that long for progress to be made on living wages? Sure. So because we were able to look back over the last 10 years, we could assess the pace of change for 25 companies that we assessed in 2013 and all the way through to 2022. We then took that data to project if we continue with this pace of change, what are the 120 companies that we assessed in 2022 likely to do over the the next 10 years, but it turned out to be almost 100. So we picked some really key indicators that we know have a substantial impact on garment workers, one of those being living wage. And we said, all right, if the pace of change for those 25 companies is indicative of how the industry is moving now, what's it going to look like for those 120 companies to progress? And what we found was that it would take 75 years for those companies to pay a living wage in just one final stage factory. So hang on a minute. So not even in all the factories they use? Not even in all the factories in final stage and definitely not all the way down to raw materials. Let me stop you there, Sarah. What do you mean final stage? So cut and sew the garment? Yeah, that's right. So they're the the factories that most fashion companies have a direct relationship with, but we know that the supply chain for fashion is very complicated and, you know, sometimes a hundred hands have touched something from, say, the cotton farm through to it being in the shopper's hands. This is an Australian report, but some of the companies that are included in it are obviously multinational companies. Give us an idea of some of the brands. So we include some of the really big fashion companies like Inditex, who owns Zara, H&M. We've also got the likes of Patagonia. So some really big players, as well as some Australian fashion companies that are well known, like the Cotton On Group. Some of the companies, given their reputation for sustainability, are surprising in terms of not leading on change. Patagonia is one example. How useful is it to release these reports that rank or name and shame brands? So I think people are often surprised with the companies that end up in our most improved and least improved lists. For example, Kmart is one of our most improved companies in the report that we've just released. And interestingly, it was also in the Fashion Revolutions Transparency Index as being one of the most improved last year. Um, But importantly, I think what people need to understand is that that's an indicator of improvement. It's not an indicator of where they're placed compared to what we would consider a best practice benchmark of 100. Mm. Um, So in the case of Kmart, it's 57. But in a nod to Kmart, it really shows that they have invested heavily in their ethical sourcing program over the last 10 years in order to see that level of change within their organisation. And I know that they also do a lot of work to collaborate with others. So they learn from others in terms of what is best practice and they share their learnings with others. I think what irks some people when they just glance at the results of various reports like this is, what do you mean H&M does well? Or how can a fast fashion brand be on top of the change-making list or something? Yeah. So look, our report 
seeks to understand something really specific, which is what are the mechanisms that companies have in their supply chain to prevent worker exploitation and avoid environmental degradation. And so we're specifically looking at the supply chain practices that they have in place. There are lots of other tools available to the general public to be able to assess other things that fashion companies are doing. But this is a really specific data set and a really fantastic tool that both fashion companies can use to push their ESG strategy forward, but also that individuals can use to contact those companies and say, I've noticed you're great at this, but you're not paying a living wage. What are you doing to work towards that? And that's that's how we want it to be used. Yeah, I think that's important. And also let's be realistic. The most sustainable brand is probably the one that you know locally that you can talk to about how they've made their stuff, maybe even see them do it, small volumes, etc. It doesn't mean, however, that we don't need to address the big players because they're going to have an outsized impact. And also it doesn't mean, as you said, that everything's taken into account. We're not talking about volumes, for example. So we deliberately target companies who earn 50 million revenue in Australian dollars and over per year. And that's because we know that they're the biggest players. And so they stand to do the most harm, but they also stand to have the biggest impact if they can improve their supply chain practices. Okay. We've made shows about this topic before, and I would refer listeners to the previous interviews we did with James Dunlop and Inika Zeldin-Rust, and we'll share some links to those episodes for a deep dive on this living wages topic. But do you want to just give us a sort of top line on what you mean when you say living wage? Sure. So living wage is often higher than the government mandated minimum wage. And it's really important because it gives workers access to life's basics. So things like access to clean water, food, safe housing, education for their children, um, but also to have a little bit left over to have financial resilience, which is increasingly important as we hit more natural disasters through climate change and things like that. So it's really important that government workers have the ability to break the cycle of poverty in their family and in their community by earning a living wage. I want to come back to that and talk more about what's stopping brands from making progress on that. But before we do, let's just give a bit of an overview on what's changed for the better. And I think it's important because otherwise we just go, oh, what, 10 years and we've come nowhere and it's going to take 75 years to pay people decently. It's just too depressing. But actually there are stories of progress. Let's talk about those first. So where have we made progress in the 10 years? Yeah, so we we kick off our report by talking about what's changed because it is really important that we acknowledge the progress that the industry's made as a whole, but also individual fashion companies. And so, you know, really excitingly, we've seen over the last 10 years that the ILO is no longer reporting incidences of child labour in the cotton sector in Uzbekistan. And that's a huge win and something that we really feel made progress because it got so much attention from the general public and, and in the media. So that's a real win. We also know that directly following Rana Plaza, uh, the Bangladesh Accord and then subsequent international accords were brought into place and they have um, had a proven impact on the safety of workers in factories, particularly those who work for major fashion brands. So when it comes to what our what we reported on, we have seen a change in areas like policies and governance and tracing and transparency. And they're really positive because they're company-led, so fashion company-led indicators um, that really set the foundation for future success. And so we celebrate those wins. So when we have 84% of companies that we survey now have a code of conduct compared to just 28% in 2013. But what we know also is that in these codes of conduct, they call out the right to have freedom of association. And yet we're not seeing that in practice. And so of the 120 companies that we surveyed in 2022, only 5% of those um, had freedom of association in the majority of their final stage factories. And so we still have a long way to go to ensure that these policies aren't just paper promises that don't result in real 
change for garment workers. Okay, before we get off the um, the wins, because we need some, I was trying to figure out how to talk about this on Instagram the other day. And the post that I came up with made much of the conclusion that this global movement has really changed things in terms of awareness. That if we look yep. back at Rana Plaza 10 years ago, there was no fashion revolution. Consumers for the large part were not particularly engaged in the stories of who made their clothes. I'm not saying they weren't. There was a whole no logo anti-sweatshop movement in the 90s. But actually, I think the awareness and caring about sustainability and fashion has been one of the huge changes in the last decade for me anyway. What do you reckon? I completely agree. And when I first joined the fashion industry, when I first became a buyer, I wasn't aware. And probably for listeners who um, are maybe a bit younger than me, they're surprised that this information wasn't as readily available as it is now. We didn't have the language to talk about these things. Yes. You know, you said before sweatshops, and I haven't used that term in a long time. Uh, I think we've moved on to have a better understanding of the nuance in the industry, the difference between home workers versus those who are working in a factory Mm. but are exploited, the varying forms of modern slavery that exist in supply chains, the environmental degradation of the amount of clothes that we're currently buying. Those things have changed wildly over the last 10 years. It shouldn't take incidences like Rana Plaza to really catalyse change, but undoubtedly it has had that impact uh, with the general public who just weren't really aware of who was making their clothes and under what circumstances. All right, let's get back onto this living wages thing. The thing I hear the most from concerned consumers or just people who are kind of watching this that don't work in the industry is, why not just pay the living wage? It seems to be immoral that we're paying the women who make our clothes poverty wages. It's gross. So why, 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 why don't brands just lift the game and do it? They've had 10 years. And if you really think, and I know that that's uh, the worst case scenario if we don't change, if we carry on as normal, but it's going to take 75 years to improve this. What on earth is stopping brands? I think when we talk about worker exploitation, people think, well, the system is broken. We need to fix the system. But in truth, the system is operating exactly as it was designed to. And so we have systemic problems and they need systemic change. And there are legitimate reasons why it is complicated for fashion companies to pay a living wage. For example, if if a company doesn't own the factory that they're working with, then there's every chance that they don't really represent enough of that factory's production, that if they increased their cost price, they would really be able to translate that into better prices for the workers. So if you haven't got the buying capacity by electing to pay more, you're not going to change it for everyone else. But what if everyone gets together and does it all at once? Well, that's that's the key, right? So one company can't do it on their own. One purchase order isn't going to make the biggest difference. But what we're really encouraging companies to do is collaborate. And they have opportunities to do that through collaborating with each other, through some fantastic multi-stakeholder initiatives like ACT that help to create a framework for paying a living wage. Mm. But also they need to be collaborating with governments and with civil society organisations, because one of the complexities um, that we need to acknowledge around payment of living wage is that it has flow on effects, really positive flow on effects for workers, because then they are able to support their families and and break the cycle of poverty. But it has other flow on effects as well. You know, when we talk about the Rana Plaza disaster, we have to ask the question, would workers have returned to work knowing that there were cracks in the building and that it was structurally unsound if they weren't threatened with wage loss, if they were paid a living wage, which would have given them financial resilience for the future? When I said to you, why don't brands just do more? I wondered if the simple answer was greed. And we know that greed is, of course, a factor. Of course it is. We live in a greedy, late-stage capitalist system where 
everybody wants more, 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 more profit at the expense of who cares. That is actually the system we live in. But they need to remain cost competitive. And there is undeniably the desire for companies to keep reducing the cost of things that they're buying so that they can increase their profit margins and so that they can continue to bring in more and more volume for the shoppers. And so there is this tension between needing to pay workers more. And I know that people in fashion companies genuinely do desire to do that, but they're at, it's at odds with what the governments, uh, local governments are able to achieve and also what the fashion companies are aiming for in terms of profit and growth. What you said there about, you know that there are people inside these companies who want to do better. I absolutely agree with it. I know that too, Sarah. You used to be one. I did. I know many of our listeners are them. And I meet so many people all the time who are like, I moved into ethical sourcing in order to make a difference. But then they, they find it's not possible or they just meet so many barriers. Let's talk a bit about that because I, I think it's important not to, not to demonise brands because brands are just places where people like you and me work. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I still get to work with a lot of these people in the work that I do now. And, you know, I really do believe that cultural change within fashion companies starts at the grassroots level. And we see a lot of people who are really trying to, to create progress within their company. But one of our key recommendations that we've been making to companies over recent years is that without board and executive buy-in and accountability, it's very hard to do actions that are beyond checking a box and to really um, see it embedded across the company's systems and processes. Mm. And one of the really key things we need to see is more responsible purchasing practices and they really need to come from the top down, be shared widely. Everyone in the organisation needs to be trained on it and the company needs to be really committed to making sure that all of their procurement processes and practices have these responsible purchasing practices embedded. If you're listening and you're like, what does that mean? Give us an example. Yeah. So responsible purchasing practices include things like long enough lead times. It includes things like the conditions under which orders can be changed. Uh, we know that there are factories that admit to selling things to Australian fashion companies at cost price because they felt that oh they gosh. had to, yeah, they felt that they had to do that in order to maintain the relationship and to remain competitive. And, and so we need to see some policies come into play that impact the way that costs are negotiated. Um, it can also include things like separating out the cost of the actual garment with the worker's wage on a purchase order so that we know that the worker's wage is protected. Sarah, your background's actually in sourcing. Years ago, you worked for an Australian brand called Cotton On. I did. Tell us a bit more about your background in this. Sure. I was reflecting on this last night and, you know, I think my love affair with fashion really started in my childhood. I had one of those kits that probably a lot of listeners had where you had the three different pieces and then you could transfer them onto paper and create all different outfits. I know these. You know it, yeah. I had one as a child and it really kicked off my love affair with fashion, I think. Um, and I was very fortunate to be able to study fashion both in high school and university and then embarked on a career as a buyer. But how did you know what a buyer was? And actually, on that, yeah. what is a buyer? And here's a funny story, actually. So I did not know what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to work in fashion, but when I was in high school, I just did not know what subjects to pick, what to, what uni degree to study. And so my mum took me to see a careers counsellor and she said to me, forget everything your teachers have told you, forget all the research you've done. If you could get paid to do anything, what would it be? And I said, oh, I guess I'd get paid to shop. And <laughs> years later, when I became a buyer, I said, Mom, I, I did it. I, I told you I would do it. And I did. And obviously, I mean, I cringe a bit at that because now 
I try to shop as little as I can. And, and when I do, I try to shop secondhand or the most ethical option that I can afford. But, you know, at the time I seemingly made it come true, right? I seemingly found the career for me. But tell us a little bit more about how buying and sourcing works. I don't think we've ever discussed this on the podcast. When you say you get paid to shop, cute, and I get it. And in a way yeah. you do. Yeah. But how, tell us some behind the curtain insights on what it actually means to work in sourcing for a brand. Yeah. So I guess from the more glamorous side of things, what I saw externally that I wanted to do was forecasting trends, traveling around the world to source and, and see different trends across the globe. At the time when I was buying, Australia was heavily influenced by what was happening in the UK and in the States. So we would go and look at trends over there. It was also working with designers and working with fabrics and prints and color, and it was creative and it was inspiring. But it was also a lot of hard work. It was managing budgets. It was coming up with strategies for pricing and markdown strategies and looking at your sales and your sell through and working with planners and allocators on where stock should go and checking fits. So it's a very technical thing. So it's a combination of head knowledge, but also gut intuition when it comes to things like trends. And so like full credit to buyers, they have really complicated jobs. Really the purpose of a buyer is to deliver what the customer wants on time at a great price in order to see the company's profits grow. Okay. But what are they buying? So are they buying labor? Are they buying fabric? What were you doing in sourcing? Yeah. So I was purchasing an end product and this is where tracing really comes into play because the relationship between the fashion company is most often with final stage suppliers. There are some companies that do that differently and have fabric buyers as well. And so they buy the fabric and then they work with a final stage supplier who can turn that into the garments. But in my situation, it was working just exclusively with final stage suppliers. I would give them a style, all the different prints and colors I wanted to see it in. They would mock it up. Once the fit was approved, they would go into production and then ship all the final garments or shoes or accessories to Australia for us to sell. How often did you see them do it? Uh, not often enough. I think as I got more senior in my buying career, I had more opportunity to be exposed to that sort of thing. But often when buyers in particular, and this is not to talk to QC and compliance staff members who I think get to see a lot, but often if buyers are able to go and see a factory, they sort of get the showcase factory. Of course. And then they get taken out for a lovely lunch and sent home. That's right. That's right. Yeah. What changed things for you? Mm, Great question. So I've worked in a lot of different areas in the fashion industry and, and been exposed to a lot, which I'm very grateful for. But but I got to a point where my buying career came to an end. I'm not saying that's forever, by the way. I might go back to it at some stage, but it just isn't the right fit for me right now. I mean, we're on a podcast called Wardrobe Crisis. That really came for me at a time that was a career crisis catalyzed by a health crisis. So in 2012, I found a lump in my neck, which turned out to be a tumor on my thyroid. And I was immediately rushed into surgery and had to take a significant amount of time off work to recover from that. And it really gave me an opportunity to just pause and reflect and ask, is this really what I want to be doing right now? Is this what I feel my contribution to the industry should be? And more than that, my contribution to the world really. And so I didn't really return from that sick leave to buying and I moved into the for-purpose sector. But did you, before that, worry that it was morally compromising or were there sort of moments where you thought, actually, I don't think this is the right thing for me to be doing or was it less of an existential crisis? (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I had, 
increasing niggles along the way, the more I knew, the less I liked. What sort of things then, like the buying practices? Yeah. So, I mean, there is this constant pressure to produce more and sell more. And we know that overproduction is a huge sustainability issue now, and it's only got worse since I stopped buying. But the the pressure to achieve that back then was enormous. The moment that I thought something isn't right here is in costing. When I knew what costs I was paying the final stage suppliers and then thinking about how that piece had been made, I think the real realisation was around shoes because shoes can be particularly complex to make. A shoe will have, you know, over 100 components for a complex sneaker. And so thinking about how many components were in this shoe that I was ordering, how many hands must have touched it and how much I was handing over to the final stage factory to pay for those shoes, it just didn't work. The maths didn't work. It was too cheap. And you could just see it. Yeah. Do you think other people feel like that? Or do you think maybe they just don't? Like, what is it that stops people making that connection? I think we have become really disconnected, not just in the fashion industry, but in every industry that that we consume from, in the food industry, in the, in the car industry. We're just not connected to the people who make our clothes and it creates this cognitive dissonance, right, between Absolutely. between our shopping experience and, and the experience of workers. Are you hopeful looking back over those 10 years and the progress that's been made, especially given the research that you've just done to co-write this report, that we can create a genuinely more ethical fashion industry globally? I am. I don't think I would do this work if I wasn't hopeful that we can create change. We know that change is coming down the line from governments, um, we know that fashion companies are able to make shifts when their backs are against the wall. And I think if the pandemic showed us anything, it's that they can make quick change. And also the movement is growing. And I really feel that for each individual that becomes a bit better informed, that decides tomorrow they're going to make a better fashion purchase, that goes onto our website and emails a fashion company and tells them that they're watching what they're doing and they want to see them do better. Um, all of these things combined can really make a difference. As long as we keep garment workers at the focus of what we do, as long as we make sure that their voices are the ones that are heard louder, then we will make significant change for garment workers in the next decade. Our last interview is with Naeem Emran, Oxfam Australia's economic justice lead. Naeem moved to Sydney five years ago, but he is from Bangladesh and he worked for years with the garment sector there, including a stint as deputy program manager for Better Work Bangladesh, which is a collaboration with the United Nations, ILO and the World Bank. Welcome to the podcast, Naeem Emran. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me today. I learned something from you that I hadn't understood before about the particular geographic or land conditions in Bangladesh that contributed to the Rana Plaza collapse and go some way towards explaining the scale of that disaster and why we luckily haven't seen the same thing happen in, say, Vietnam or Cambodia. I wondered if you might start by sharing that with us. Before I go into the specific landscape, uh, let me explain a little bit how the industry grew in Bangladesh. So because of this um, preferential trade agreements with US and Europe, suddenly Bangladesh started getting a huge amount of order for, for garments. What Bangladesh could offer is volume at a low price. Basic T-shirts in huge volume Bangladesh could produce and offer. And that's the reason why the brand started placing order to Bangladesh. For each unit, the profit is very, very low. The only way you can make money is by producing in volume, which means you need huge capacity. To do so, the huge building were constructed, but 
Bangladesh is a delta and it's a marshy land. So most of this building were constructed on a landfill. So was Rana Plaza. And the only way you can bring that capacity is by growing vertically rather than horizontally. To manage this huge volume, you need to have extra and extra capacity. So even when you have an approval to have a six-story buildings, you end up having two extra, three extra floors illegally. So because it's a land, so you're building on top of a landfill, it's not particularly stable. There's also not a lot of space. The conditions are almost ripe for building unsafe buildings. Absolutely. So it's a perfect recipe for a possible disaster. When the structure is supposed to support four stories, you're constructing six, seven stories. The other thing that is important to understand to manage volume, they keep on accepting more orders and placing that order to a subcontracting factory, which even at times brands were not aware of. And Rana Plaza was one one such factory. So if you add all that up, Whenever even there is a fire or something happening on the 7th or 8th floor, it's very difficult to evacuate. Mm. And the buildings are very close to each other. But if you go to Cambodia and Vietnam, you will find that the factory buildings are much flatter. It's one or two-storied buildings. So even when there's an incident or a fire or anything happens, it's very easy to evacuate. So the loss of life is much less in these countries. The big question is safety. How has the accord changed things on the ground in Bangladesh? Accord is a binding, a legally binding agreement. It is an agreement between the trade unions and the brand. Interestingly, the owners, the enterprise owners, are not part of this agreement in Accord. They are an observer, but they do not have actually any say into this process. Overall, the buildings that they inspected, they are much safer now. But having said that, Accord hasn't covered all the garment factories in Bangladesh. And they had not covered the subcontracting factories as well. So they right. only covered the factories for the brands, 190 brands that have signed. If you go to the Accord website, or you can see, or particularly Clean Clothes website, you can see a huge number of brands that still have not signed the Accord. You can see Walmart hasn't signed Accord. You'll find very big name brands still have Levi's. Levi's hasn't signed Accord. So there, you'll find a huge list of very big brands. Okay, so... What are the limitations? So only a certain number of big brands have signed it. Subcontractors are... They're not simply covered under the inspection. And the factories in Rana Plaza would have come under that category, right? Absolutely, yes. I mean, obviously Rana Plaza is a big disaster. But there were indications in Bangladesh that something like that may happen anytime. If you go back, there was a Tazreen fire that happened a year before. And exactly the same thing happened because it's a tall building. The fire happened, the escape was not there, and the workers had to jump out of the tall building and lost their life. And if you even go back, there was a spectrum factory collapse that has happened, which also it was a factory building collapse similar to Rana Plaza. 74 workers lost their life. So there were warning signals, but nothing was done to really prevent this happening. I just wanted to stress that. And... Even in Rana Plaza, we know the story that uh, the day before the workers had evacuated and the morning they refused to come in, but they were asked that if they do not join the factory, they will not get paid. And that is one of the major problems because the wage is so low. That's the reason why we've been pushing for living wage, which is the minimum that a worker should earn to support her and her family uh, to meet the basic. Uh, basic food, shelter, and education. We're not talking about luxury. We're talking about the minimum basic. 
which should be equal to the minimum wage. Just give us a bit of insight into your professional background. So you're from Bangladesh. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Bangladesh uh, at Dhaka City. My parents are from a, a remote place close to the coastal area. I have worked in garment factories. I've worked for uh, brands, but um, I've spent a huge amount of time working for the World Bank Group. And while I was working for the World Bank Group, my primary focus was the garment industry and the garment supply chain, not only in Bangladesh, but in Southeast Asia. And then I joined International Labor Organization under the Better Work Program, which is primarily looking into the labor right issues. And then uh, I joined Oxfam, then I joined, came to Australia. It's interesting that you bring this background of having actually worked and seen how it operates inside a garment factory, though. And that's something that perhaps not everybody does who works on the advocacy side. Yes, and I still miss that when I'm in Australia. I miss the factory environment and uh, be close to the workers. And the other thing is, I think we often talk, especially in this sort of forum or at conferences about sustainability, about the people that make our clothes, about factories. But we, so many of us have never even been inside a factory. Yes, and we also miss, because when we talk about the garment industry, we generally talk about the cutting and making the garment factories. But there is the fabric manufacturers, the dyeing factories, the button manufacturers, the polybag so there's huge backward linkage, the spinning factories, the cotton growers, the chemical industry involved. There's a huge, huge industry involved at the back end that we don't get to understand or see. Let's talk about compliance. So the first thing that brands will say is we've checked the conditions, we've brought in the auditors, we're working with these third parties, and we can assure you that we've got all the paperwork in place and we are compliant why is that not enough? And can you give us some insights into how all that works? And also the enormous industry that's grown up around it. Yeah. First of all, we need to understand what is compliance. At times, we use that word in a very general way. We, we really don't understand what it really means. Compliance basically means that a particular factory is meeting certain standard. So if you meet a certain standard, you are compliant. So the, must, for the first question is, if the standard itself is very low, then if you can still meet that standard and you can still be compliant. But the standard is so low that there is a huge opportunity for human right abuse happening in your supply chain. There could be forced labor, there could be child labor, there could be wage, could be very, very low. I'll give you a practical example. In the code of conduct of all the brands, they say that the minimum wage needs to be paid. If you pay a minimum wage, then you're compliant. Now, the minimum wage itself is very low. So yes, they are compliant because they are paying a minimum wage, but minimum wage is so low that the workers are not being able to meet the basic needs. In some cases, the brands have their own compliance team, so they go and do the audit. In some cases, they hire third-party auditors. And it's a huge, huge growing business. Guru Veritas, SGS, there are huge big auditing firms globally, they conduct these audits on behalf of the brands. And the third is the certification bodies. So there are RAP certification, SA 1000 certification, there is SEDEC certification. So the factories also get the certifications to show that they're compliant. And the, and the factories have to pay, pay for this process to Absolutely. get the certification. So, so if you say we're working with a SEDEX factory, that means that the supplier has gone through that and had to pay for it. Not Absolutely. that the brand did. Even the brand audit is being paid by the factory in most of the cases. The volume of this auditing business is growing in exponentially. But at the same point in time, it is turning out to be a policing job whereby the auditor will come in and try and see or identify what are the non-compliant factors 
and the factory will try to hide it. What strikes me is that there's a lot of paperwork and pressure on the suppliers. They've got to potentially do this five different times. They are told by brands, no, no, we don't allow any excess overtime. And yet the brands say, but we want the product tomorrow. So everything's sort of rigged against or the power imbalance is clearly in the hands of the brands, right? The bottom line is that the entire compliance era that started to protect the brand reputation and the risk, one of the most common areas is overtime. So obviously the brand says that you cannot allow excessive overtime, but excessive overtime happens in every factory. So there is always this hide and seek happening, how do you can manipulate the data and the information so that you can hide that. So that process has failed. And then there are allegations that corruption happens into this process. For example, if there is a third party individual auditor coming in and want to give a clean sheet, there are allegations that bribery and corruption has happened in the process. Uh, there has been allegation on the other way that the compliance officer, the, the auditor came in and auditor were threatened that if a clean sheet was not given, then because that auditor based in the same country and these owners are very powerful, so they can be threatened not if they do not give a proper or a clean report, then they might get into trouble. Mm-hmm. There has been some cases of people getting physically harassed as well. Uh, maternity leave has been a huge issue. There has been a factory where they used to check the health of every woman at the time of entry, but they used to do a pregnancy test as well. The point was that if someone is pregnant, that person will not get the job. Um, wow. So they, they used to indirectly, in the process of health and safety check, indirectly they used to make sure that no pregnant women can get into the factory so that they don't have to pay the maternity benefit and all that. So there have been many, many interesting cases about union busting and things like that. But the brands did realize that it's not working. So they came out with this partnership approach where they started talking about, especially the bigger brands, they started talking about, okay, we know that you do excel over time. We know you have um, some abuse and harassment issues in your factories. We know there are health and safety concerns in your factory. Let's discuss this and let's try and solve that together rather than playing, playing that hide and seek game, which you have been playing for many years and it's not just working and we understand that. And then the COVID hit. And that entire partnership model fell apart. Because the partner who you're relying on not to pull your orders suddenly lets you down, so there is no trust. Suddenly the entire model fell apart because brands suddenly stopped paying. They said, don't ship my product. They requested for delayed shipment. That huge mistrust happened between the, among the brands and the, and the manufacturers that it, it will take time to bring back that trust again. and really form a true partnership with this. But to me, I think that's the only way to go forward. I don't think compliance and the policing is ever going to help uh, this industry to make sure that the workers and the women who are working in the factories are being able to work in a safe working conditions and their basic human rights are being respected. If it is left as a self-regulatory thing and a thing that they should do, but that there's no legal obligation around that, then it might take a long time. There is a global momentum going on and a general understanding among the consumers as well as the investors who are investing in these big companies. Also, the brands are realizing that they are much more exposed now than ever before. Now, the other is that the the government regulations, the Europe is obviously taking the lead in terms of introducing the mandatory human rights due diligence. They have taken lead in modern slavery 
UK is taking lead. So they're showing the pathway that if there is willingness and if there is the right pressure, things can quickly change. So if things are not changing, it's because people who hold the power doesn't want to change, not yeah. because they can't change or they don't have the capacity to change. It's because they don't want to change because they want to make more profit at the expense of someone's life. People who run factories want them to be run better, right? They're not all bad trying to exploit everyone. It's just that there's a massive power imbalance. What do suppliers want to see? That's a very, very interesting question. I'll tell you a small story. I was in Bangladesh in in March, and whenever I speak to the owners of the manufacturers and ask them the question that, what is the problem? Why we cannot improve the wages and uh, the facilities for the workers? The common response is that we always want to do that because we understand that that makes good business sense. We want to improve the facilities and the wages of the workers. The reason we can't do so is because the buyers are constantly putting us under pressure to reduce price. So we cannot play at both ends. At one end, they're asking us all that compliance, but the other end, they're consistently asking us to lower the price. How can we survive under this condition? Now, when I speak to the brands and say that, okay, so this is the narrative from the manufacturers. The brand says we never do that. We never put downward pressure on price. This is the last thing that we do. Uh, We look into quality. We look into delivery. We look into partnership. We make sure that the workers are safe. Price, we never put pressure on. So they have completely two different narratives on the same issue. And we have been thinking about how to really resolve that issue. When you negotiate price, can you agree that this is the labor component? So, for example, if the price is $10, there are profit, there are material cost, overhead. But what is the labor component? Is it $2, $3? Can you agree on that? Then we can resolve that problem. Basic concept is very simple. Identify the labor cost and ring fence it. Don't reduce that portion of it. Both the brands as well as the manufacturer can monitor and to increase the wages, that portion can go up over a period of time, which will completely stop the blame game. And it's very doable. It is not a rocket science. Paying a living wage is actually not as difficult as it sounds. It's actually very simple. You just need to do the right thing and have the right mindset. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press.